all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome aboard, Galactic Explorers. I am Kyle, your navigator through the cosmos, and you are now tuned into Star Wars Audio Archives. Today we embark on an extraordinary journey through the fifth part of Light of the Jedi, but with a twist that is as exciting as a duel with Darth Vader himself. This time we're not just listeners, we're stepping into the story. Imagine you are a new recruit in a group of brave explorers, handpicked by the Jedi Council for this special mission. Your task, to uncover a mysterious force anomaly deep in the unknown regions. What secrets will you find as the story unfolds right inside your ears? As we travel, we will learn of new threats to the Republic, the pirate clan called the Nihil. So expect the unexpected. Keep your wits about you and trust in your instinct. So grab your data pad, ready your blaster. Our adventure is just about to begin. Here we go, team, into the unknown heart of part five. It was not over. In the Abdallah system, farther along the same hyperlane the Legacy Run had been traveling when it met its end. Seven fragments of that ship emerged from hyperspace, just past the transfer point. Not the largest, nor the smallest, was a chunk of the huge cargo vessel's superstructure. A durasteel support beam still attached to a large portion of the ship's hull. The fragments were moving at just below light speed, but all were unpowered, electronically inert, and well inside the normal transfer point from hyperspace where vessels could arrive in the system. The sensor arrays and early warning systems did not pick up the anomalies until it was far too late. And even if they had, there was no Republic cruiser full of Jedi nearby to save the day. All seven fragments were traveling along the system's ecliptic, but Abdalus was not as densely populated as Hetzal. Space was immense, and the fragments were, in comparison, tiny. Six of them hit nothing passing through the system and out the other side without incident. The seventh hit a glancing blow on the most densely populated world of the system. A swampy wasteland interrupted only by city-sized factories, slums inhabited by the workers who operated those factories, and here and there, the towers inhabited by those who profited from both. The fragment was vaporized in the impact, but the concussion flattened one of those cities, and the slums, and the towers. Approximately 20 million people were killed. This was the first emergence. Interlude, the Nihil. Abdallah's never a lovely world always shrouded in swirling, brown-tinted clouds, as if the swamps on the surface were trying to escape the planet's gravity. Now, though, it looked even worse than usual. The orbital impact had forced an enormous cloud of vaporized water and mud into the air, and much of that had ionized, causing gigantic lightning storms to flicker across the planet's atmosphere. It looked like some form of hell. A convoy of six freighters made its way through the system, away from the ravaged planet. They held the entire workforce, along with their families, of Gorello Technologies, a mid-level materials research and manufacturing concern based in the Keftia district. Beyond the people, the freighter's holds also contained much of the company's most important research, databases, machinery, and financial resources. All of it had been loaded aboard the six starships to bring it off-world for safety, while the disaster unfolded on Abdalus, a massive effort that consumed all of the day and night that had passed since the impact. The company's chief executive, Lawrence Corello, had made the company's other starships available to the Abdalusian government for relief efforts. But he had chosen to take care of his people and his business first. Many people relied on Gorello Technologies, and he wanted to ensure that when the crisis abated, every person who put his trust in him would be safe and sound. 
and would still be working for a company that could continue producing the ideas and products that supported so many. Many Obdelistian business owners at Lorenz's level scoffed at him for going to such great expense to temporarily pack up his operation and move it off-planet. But he didn't care. The oligarchs and trillionaires cared more for a single durasteel beam in their factories than the people who worked in them. Lorenz was wealthy, yes, but that was because good people in his employ gave him their all. He was damn well going to take care of every last one. The convoy was headed to the system's outer edge, where it would stop to wait to see how the situation developed. But before the ships could reach their destination, they encountered something strange. It looked like a storm, or a storm cloud, perhaps. A massive blue-gray swirl of vapor out in space, dense and threatening, and directly in the convoy's path. Faint lights flickered from deep within it, like spark flies in dusk above the Abdelissian swamps. The lead ship in the convoy was the Arbitrage, captained by a dark-furred Shistabonin named Odaba, a good, steady hand who had worked for Gorello Technologies for over a decade. He scanned the cloud, but the sensors could not provide any information. He gave the order for all ships to divert course, to go around the thing, whatever it was. Better safe than sorry. But there was no safety. Not anymore. The storm cloud lit up. A massive, jagged spike of energy shot out from the middle of the cloud, lashing out past the arbitrage to impact one of the other ships in the convoy. The Mari's diligence, named after Lorenz Garello's mother. The other ship glowed brightly for a moment, surrounded by phosphorescent fire, then went dark. Its running lights deactivating along the length of its hull, and engines fading out. Amari's diligence began to drift away from the rest of the convoy, all its systems clearly offline. Captain Odaba ordered the convoy to raise shields and prepare for battle. But all six ships were freighters, not warships. And in the rush to evacuate the planet, no guard fighters had been arranged. The cargo vessels were all but unarmed, with only a few light laser cannons each. Another flash from the cloud, then another. Now, it was impossible to think of them as anything but lightning strikes. Huge blasts of energy at a scale difficult to process. Each of these last two strikes found a target in Gorello's convoy. But by now, the shields were up. And while they didn't cripple the vessels the way the first against the Mari's diligence had, both ships' defenses took a significant hit. But each flash of light had illuminated the cloud from the inside. And for just a moment, the beings aboard the convoy had seen what was waiting for them. Ships. Many ships. As if the third and final strike was a signal, the vessels hiding in the strange cloud shot out. A buzzing, whipping swarm. They were ugly, blocky things with spikes protruding from them in no discernible pattern. They looked like tools designed for beating someone to death. Most were sized for one or two pilots, but some were larger. And in the center of the cloud, a much bigger vessel waited. It was at least equal in size to one of the convoy's freighters. But this was no cargo ship. This was a cruel thing, built for war, for destruction. All of the ships had two things in common. No matter their size or design, three bright slashes down their sides, like war paint, and a strange attachment to their engines. A metal lattice, like a half-moon, filled with rippling green fire of unknown purpose. Laser bolts began to lance out from the convoy's freighters, anemic and thin in comparison with the threat they faced. There were... So many. Word began to spread among the people of Gorello Technologies and the convoy's crews. Hope died, replaced with panic and terror. They had seen the lightning strikes and the insignia on the ships. They believed they knew who was attacking them. The Nihil. 
Captain Odaba gave the order to run, to turn and race back to Abdalis. He knew it was futile, but less so than fighting. And perhaps some of the ships might somehow reach safety. The Nye Hill. A year ago, neither Lorenz Garello nor anyone in his employ had even heard the name. But in the past months, the word had taken on an almost talismanic quality across the Outer Rim. Like a plague, or a hunting beast that could not be escaped or fought. The Nye Hill were raiders. Thieves. Murderers. Kidnappers. They could be anywhere, at any time. Appearing from nothing. They worked in space, on planets, in cities, in the wilderness. They moved like spirits, and killed like devils. Whether they were actually monsters or just acted with monstrous savagery was unclear. What was known about them was dwarfed by what was not. The most important things known about the Nye Hill were these. They took what they wanted and destroyed what they didn't. And while occasionally you heard a story about someone surviving an encounter with the Nye Hill, you never heard a story about someone fighting him off. A large segment of the enemy ships surrounded the disabled Mari's diligence, swirling around it in a manner chaotic, but somehow aware. Like winged insects swarming a corpse, but never colliding with one another. Projectiles fired from each of the Nihil attack ships. Not laser blasts or missiles. These were something like harpoons. And each dug deep into the hull of the unshielded, defenseless freighter. As one, the Nihil vessels rotated 180 degrees, so their engines faced the Mari's diligence. And then those engines fired. Long tendrils of flame shot out from each ship. And the Nihil vessels strained at the cables attaching them to the freighter. From the bridge of the arbitrage, Lorenz Garello watched in horror, thinking of the people on that ship. The thousands of people on that ship. Their families. He had told them to bring their families. That he would keep them safe. The Mari's diligence ripped apart. It did not explode, other than a few flickers of flame here and there. Presumably, this was due to the fact that the ship's systems were largely inert after the Nihil's first strike. Whatever the cause, it shattered and tore, its inner passageways and compartments venting to space. Smaller objects and bits of debris came spiraling out into the void. And Lorenz Garello, chief executive of Garello Technologies, knew that some of those objects were his people. Keep firing! Captain Odaba shouted to his bridge crew. I've called for assistance from Abdalis, and I'll send with again. We just need to move on. Lorenz was not a military man, but even he knew these words rang hollow. Abdalis was consumed with a planet-wide catastrophe. Their government was corrupt and ineffective after generations of catering to all those oligarchs and trillionaires and might not send anyone to help even if they could. Another blast fired from the lightning-like weapon emanating from the largest vessel in the Nihil force. The warship at its center. It hit one of the other freighters, which went cold and dead, as had the Mari's diligence. Everyone left in the convoy assumed that this ship, too, would shortly be ripped apart and plundered by the Nihil corpse flies. Indeed. Enemy ships surrounded the disabled freighter, and the cables shot out again. But this time, something different happened. Perhaps the freighter's reactor was not completely inert, or some other error was made. But the cargo ship exploded. A ball of white light enveloped the Gorello Technologies vessel, as well as many of the swarm of Nihil surrounding it. And while Lorenz Gorello's heart ached at more of his people lost, he felt a beat of savage triumph at the thought of at least they had taken some of the bastards with them. 
We'll be in bodies, Captain Odaba said, his voice grim, staring at the alerts and threat indicators rippling across the screens. I'll open the weapons locker. We don't have enough blasters for everyone. Anyone with military experience gets priority. Everyone else, find something to fight with. He moved away from the command console toward the bridge annex, where the freighter's limited complement of weaponry was stored. But before he could take two steps, the bridge hatch smashed open, as if kicked inward by a giant. It skidded across the deck, smashing into and presumably killing a member of Captain Odaba's crew. The Klaatuinian woman died without making a sound. Three white canisters shot into the room from the exterior corridor. Before they hit the deck, they exploded, and the bridge was filled with thick, dense, blue-gray gas. It was instantaneous. One moment the air was breathable, and the next, it was like being lost in a fog. Or a storm cloud, perhaps. Lorenz Guerrero tried to hold his breath. But the shock of the events had left his heart racing, and he was not as young as he once was. He took in a gasp of air, but it was not air, <coughs> and his system reacted near instantaneously to the poison. He looked up to the hatchway, where the Nihil were entering the bridge. He saw them through swimming, fading vision, saw the masks they wore and knew that whatever they were beneath, they wanted the galaxy to see them as monsters. Lorenz Garello sucked in one final burning breath and knew he would not be one of those rare few to survive an encounter with the Nihil. Part Two, The Paths. Coruscant. Monument Plaza. Lena So rested the palm of her hand on the rough surface of Umit, the tallest peak of the Minari Range. The mountain's summit was some twenty meters above her head, and its base was somewhere five thousand two hundred sixteen levels below, at the very bottom of the city world that was Coruscant. This was the one spot left on the planet where its original topography could be seen. Farther below, the mountain's structure had been incorporated into the city, becoming a sort of hive of tunnels and passageways and chambers surfaced by durasteel and permacrete, barely distinguishable from the other parts of the planet. But here, a bit of wildness remained. People from all over the Republic came to Monument Plaza to see Umate, and many did as Lena So had, felt its surface, and took a moment for reflection. A darkened ring around the peak's base served as evidence of the countless hands that had touched it over the generations. All those minds, all that sentience, all those many perspectives. Umate meant different things to different beings. Endurance, the imperturbability of nature despite the efforts of sentient beings to remake the galaxy. Even just the novelty of a natural thing in an artificial world. To Lena So, Chancellor of the Great Republic that was bringing light to the galaxy's many worlds, stitching them together into an enlightened union in which anything was possible, Umate meant choice. The city world's planners could have removed the mountain at any point in its millennia of history, but generation after generation had not. They had repeatedly made the decision, the choice, to preserve this one place, this one thing. Many political systems had claimed Coruscant in its day, from brutal empires to the purest democracies, but all had chosen to keep Umate as it was. Monument Plaza climbing upward century by century as new levels were added to the city's surface. Progress was inevitable and crucial, but was not the only goal. 
Mindfulness was also important. Choice. Chancellor So stepped back from the mountain. She turned away. Matari and Voru lifted their great heads and stepped toward her. The huge, beautiful beasts, sensing her mood, and knowing she was ready to move on. The two Targons, twins, a red male and a yellow female, both taller than she was, with thick fur and tufted ears, took their accustomed stations at her side, keeping pace as she moved away from Umate. The giant cats accompanied her everywhere, acting as guards, companions, even sounding boards. She often spoke aloud to them as she worked through ideas or plans. The creatures did not understand her words, but Targons had low-level empathic abilities, as unusual as that was in a predator species. Matari and Voru might not comprehend, but they understood. More than anything else, the creatures were utterly loyal. Lena worked in politics. Loyalty was the quality she valued above all else. The surface of level 5,216, surrounding Umate's peak, had been turned into a green space, with effort being made to replicate the original plants and trees that would have been visible at the mountain's base untold millennia earlier when the planet's surface was still accessible. No one really knew if the park designer's choices were accurate, but it was certainly lovely enough. Ordinarily, Monument Plaza was full of tourists, all waiting their turn to touch Umate. A long line stretching most of the way through the park to Senate Hill. Now, though, the area was empty, cleared by the Coruscant Security Force. Lena could have held this meeting in her offices, or indeed almost anywhere on the planet. But she liked being here. More than any other spot, it was here that she felt connected to the rest of the Republic. It drove her security teams crazy, because she was theoretically vulnerable to aerial attack while out in the open. Though, she thought, Matari and Voru might find a way to bring down a speeder if push came to shove. Lena was not worried about an attack, aerial or otherwise. This was the heart of the core, and the Republic was at peace, barring the occasional regional squabble. She was as safe in Monument Plaza as she was in her own bed. Let's hope that's still true, she considered, thinking about what had happened with the Legacy Run and all it could mean. Narelle Quo, her primary aide, an unpigmented Korobar, unusual among his people, was waiting a respectful distance away. Are you ready, Chancellor? He said. I am, Narell, Lena answered. I hope no one's annoyed that I took a moment. I don't come here enough, and considering the conversation we're about to have, I thought it might be worth centering myself. You're the Chancellor of the Republic, Narell said turning to keep pace with her as they walked away from the mountain and deeper into the park. Lena's blue-clad Republic guards falling into formation around them. They'll wait. The path curved around a grove of billion trees, their flute stems whistling in the evening breeze, leading to a small clearing beyond. There, So's appointment waited, a group of some of the most powerful people on the planet, and therefore the entire Republic. Four Jedi, the Cormian, Yeriel Poof, and Tagruta, Joramali, both members of their council. Mali second, the imposing Trandoshan Jedi, Skier, and Master Avar Chris, who had been directly involved with the resolution of the Legacy Run disaster in the Hetzal system. Senator Izet Noar of Sereno, the spokesperson for the majority of the Outer Rim territories, Jeffo Lorilia, her transportation secretary, and finally, Admiral Pevel Cronara of the Republic Defense Coalition, the organization created from the pooled resources of many worlds to handle the rare regional flare-ups that could not be managed by the forces of any one planet alone. Cronara did not command the RDC, 
but he was a high-ranking member with direct knowledge of the matters to be discussed. A few Coruscant Security Force guards were discreetly positioned around the edge of the clearing, and a polished copper-colored servitor droid stood nearby, ready to provide any required aid. The seven people were chatting among themselves, but fell silent as Lena approached. She walked straight to Avar Chris, smiling. She extended her arms and took the Jedi's hand in both of hers, clasping it and looking the other woman in the eyes. Avar seemed tired, but that was no wonder, considering the ordeal she had been through. Master Chris, on behalf of the entire Republic, please accept my gratitude for everything you did out there in Hetzal. You and the other Jedi saved billions of lives. Not to mention helping secure food production for the Outer Rim. We are all the Republic, Madam Chancellor, Chris replied, giving a little smile of her own. We did what we could. It's inspiring and symbolic of everything I want this Republic to be. We all help each other, and we all grow and thrive together. Lena released the Jedi's hand giving her another smile as she did. She looked at the rest of the group. I have decided to expand the hyperspace closure, another 500 parsecs around Hetzal, until further notice. Senator Noar let out a low whistle. He was a thin, tall man, aged but vigorous, bald but for a lush fringe of white hair that he wore long letting it drape over the collar of his bright green robes. That would strangle that part of the Outer Rim, Chancellor. Do you have any idea how much traffic moves along those routes? Trade? Transportation? Shipping? I'm not talking forever, Senator. But these emergencies keep happening. How many do we have so far? Admiral Cronara gestured at the servitor droid and it projected a flat map of the Outer Rim into the air, centered on Hetzal, displayed in red. A number of other systems were also marked with the color, creating a very rough circle around the site of the original disaster. A red ring surrounded it all, the current boundary of the hyperspace lane closures. Fifteen at current, Count Chancellor, Admiral Cronara answered. We might be missing some... Yes, obviously not every fragment of the legacy run impacts a planet. We're assuming other pieces are emerging from hyperspace undetected. And we still have no idea what caused this? Not yet, Secretary Lorelia replied in his thickly accented basic. My analysts have never seen anything like it, but we are working on the problem. So, in theory... Lena said. It's possible that any ship traveling through hyperspace could be destroyed in a similar way? The transportation secretary nodded, uncomfortable. He was a no-nonsense mune, and disliked uncertainty of any kind. His goal, the point of his entire galaxy-wide bureau he ran, was to keep the spaceports humming and cargo running, and passenger transports arriving and departing precisely on time. The idea that there could be a problem with hyperspace, the barely understood system that allowed the entire Republic to exist. Well, Lena thought this might be poor Jeffo's worst nightmare. The risk of another similar disaster is why I've closed the lanes, and why they will remain closed until we know more, Lena said. Lorelia's thin lips twitched, and he lifted his hands, tapping his long, thin fingers together once. Slowly, then again, Lena gave him a reassuring pat on the shoulder. It's all right, Jeffo. I realize this makes your job a thousand times more challenging. But I'll give you all the support I can. You understand why this is necessary, I hope. The emergencies are bad enough. We simply cannot have another ship fall apart like the Legacy Run. She gestured at Cronara and Avar Chris. Next time, we might not have Jedi and Republic heroes nearby to save the day. 
Secretary Lorilia gave a tight nod, pulling himself together. Of course, Chancellor. You can rely on me. I will make it work. Lena took a moment to consider the reports she had received, then turned to the members of the Jedi Council standing nearby, listening intently, but volunteering nothing. Anything from your side of things? Lena asked. We can say that these events do not seem to be the result of direct action by Force users, Yoriel Poof said, the Cormian's head weaving back and forth on his elongated neck like a flower in a breeze. We are not all-knowing, but as of now we have no evidence along those lines. I was at Hetzal, Joramali added a petite woman in the white and gold tunic of the Jedi Temple. She seemed a little frustrated. She kept tapping a finger against one of the beautifully striped headtails that draped down across her chest. Togrutas had a certain regality as a species, with their montrals arcing out from their heads like crowns, and the headtails like natural robes across their bodies. Even their coloration contributed to the effect. In this case, the bright orange skin, and striking white facial markings, suggesting a masked ball. Lena knew these characteristics were no more than the result of evolution, camouflage coloration, but they combined to give Togrutas a certain natural authority when interacting with most of the galaxy's sentient beings. Joramali used that to full effect, whether consciously or not. Lena had only dealt with the woman a few times in the past, but she had gotten the sense that Jorah had a tinge of un-Jedi-like impatience. She liked to push problems until answers revealed themselves, trying many things until something worked, rather than considering all angles and taking one decisive action. She preferred, in a word, to be busy. That was why, Lena presumed, the Jedi Council had given Jorah Mali the job of running the Order's section of the new Starlight Beacon Station in the Outer Rim. The station would be the first responder for virtually every Republic or Jedi-related issue in that massive expanse of space. She would hold equal command with an RDC Admiral and a Republic Territorial Administrator, with all significant decisions made by a majority vote. One problem to solve after another. Endless negotiations and tinkering, and a thousand things to do at once. It was the perfect assignment for her. While Skier and I arrived after the Legacy Run tragedy had already begun, Joramali went on. If the Force had been used to cause it, I think either I or one of the other Jedi in the system would have sensed that. Master Chris, in particular, was closely connected to the Force from almost the very start of the events. Skier hissed his agreement. Senator Noar stepped toward Lena, inserting himself into her line of sight. A mildly aggressive act that caused Matari and Voru to flatten their ears. The Senator seemed not to notice. The idea that mere beasts would dare to violate his person not even crossing his mind. Chancellor, I must ask again, Noir said. How long are you planning to keep the hyperspace lanes closed? Not every outer rim world is self-sufficient. Billions of people depend on those lanes for food and other essentials. Obviously, I won't let people starve, Senator, Lena said, a little exasperated. I've already got one crisis. I won't start a second one trying to solve it. I just want to decrease the odds of another disaster, at least until we understand what we're dealing with. If need be, I'll authorize limited shipping of essential goods through the lanes. She turned to Quinara. I'll ask you to enforce the ban, Admiral. Can you coordinate with the other RDC commanders to station cruisers at the applicable hyperlane beacons? I don't want anyone reactivating portions of the navigation network. No navigational updates will keep these lanes from being used. It'll be a larger mobilization than anything we've done for some time, Madam Chancellor, but certainly. 
Thank you, Lena said. She took two steps forward until she was directly before the map of the Outer Rim territories hovering in midair. We all want this over as soon as possible. Besides the immediate goal of preventing further death and destruction, you know I have plans for this part of the galaxy. The Starlight Beacon Station will make the Republic more than just a distant ideal, making brief appearances in the Outer Rim when our starships fly through or we attempt to collect taxes. We will be there, with them. Helping from Bundukai to Bastion. Chancellor So tapped her index finger on the map, and a single glowing star-like dot appeared, more or less in the center of the region interdicted by the ongoing hyperspace disaster. The Starlight Beacon. Finally finished, after a lengthy, challenging construction process, the huge way station was built to serve many purposes. A Republic embassy that could also serve as a fortress if necessary. A projection of security presence to discourage raider and marauder activity. A Jedi outpost containing the largest single contingent outside the Coruscant Temple itself, where they would research and teach and listen for the guidance of the Force. Cultural spaces showcasing the beauty of the many worlds making up the sector. A communications relay that would boost transmission times in the region by a factor of ten. The most state-of-the-art medical facilities in the Outer Rim. Even now, survivors of the disasters in the Hetzal and Abdallah systems were being treated on Starlight, despite the station not being formally open just yet. Chancellor So had plans for many great works, extending from infrastructure to culture. The Republic Fair. The ongoing construction of calm relays throughout the galaxy. Cracking the code on Bacta cultivation. Negotiation of a new treaty between the Quarren and Mon Calamari. All sorts of innovations, technological and otherwise. But the Starlight Beacon and the other planned stations of the Beacon Network, they were how she would be remembered. The greatest of the great works. Bringing the Republic out from the core and making it truly a galactic entity. It was all hugely expensive, though, in both credits and political capital, even in an era of enlightenment and peace, when trade flourished and the coffers were relatively full, there were those who preferred the status quo. Their view? Certainly things were good now, but they could always turn bad. And why spend credits now you might need then? The Republic was huge, and creating complete consensus was impossible. A group of three people might all face the same problem and find three utterly different solutions. Multiply that by trillions, and it gave some sense of what it was like to run a galactic government. But Lena had done it. Not by making promises she had no intention of keeping, or making threats, or abusing the power of her office. She had simply done her best to show the worlds of the Republic what they might be if they all came together. How much better things could be. How unique this moment was in history. And how they needed to seize it, and move forward, and ideally extend it so the many generations to come could know the peace and prosperity they all now enjoyed. The Starlight Beacon symbolized everything she wanted for the Republic, and every member of the Senate knew it. If it succeeded, the rest became that much easier. If it failed... I will not jeopardize lives, the Chancellor said, but you all know how important it is. For many reasons, that the Starlight Beacon dedication ceremony takes place as currently scheduled. Joramali spoke, her tone milder than before. This was a question to which she had an answer. I was just at Starlight. It's finished, but for perhaps a bit of polishing and cleanup, she said. A short delay shouldn't have much impact on the schedule. She gestured at Avar. 
Master Chris was there recently as well, just before the Legacy Run disaster for the inspection tour, reviewing the Jedi Quarter. How did it seem to you? As you say, Master Molly, she answered. I'm not an expert, but Administer Tenem explicitly said Starlight Beacon could hold its dedication ceremony as scheduled. If not for the blockade, the last little touches would be complete in a few weeks from now. She does not seem the type to exaggerate. All right, then, Lena said. Let's figure this out. I have questions. She lifted her hand and started to tick them off on her fingers one by one. How many fragments remain of the Legacy Run? Do any of them contain survivors? And if so, is there a chance those people could be rescued? They're all Republic citizens, and if we can save them, we must. Is there a way to predict where any remaining emergencies might happen? And most important... She closed her hand into a fist. What actually happened? And why? Is hyperspace safe? Or is this all just getting started? No one responded. They all knew better than to speculate. I'm asking all of you to find out. You represent administrators, politicians, the security forces, and of course, the Jedi. Some of you were present at the Legacy Run disaster. Between you, there should be more than enough skill and connections to determine what happened and prevent it from happening again. The resources of the Republic and all the authority of my office are available to you. Create any teams you like. Draft anyone you think might be useful. The Starlight Beacon is due to open in 30 days. I would like to use the occasion to celebrate a Republic triumph over adversity. I do not wish to open that station while a huge swath of the galaxy is locked down, underscoring the Republic's inability to keep its citizens safe. Use the Starlight Beacon dedication as your deadline. Figure this out, my friends. I believe you can. Chancellor Lena So reached out to either side, burying her hands in the fur of Matari and Voru, taking comfort in their warmth and presence. She looked up above the tree line, to the very peak of Umate, just twenty meters above. Once, the mountain must have dominated this part of the planet, the queen of the entire Minari range. Now, it was just a small chunk of stone poking up from the surface of a world that had utterly swallowed it up, dwarfed by everything around it. Umate remained, though, the benefit of a choice made generation after generation to preserve the mountain, even in this attenuated form. Lena so appreciated that, the way societies could choose heritage over progress represented here in living stone. But to the Chancellor, Umate had a second meaning. A symbolism she would never voice, never speak aloud, as it went against the general spirit of optimism and hope and possibility that was a cornerstone of her government and, indeed, the Republic itself. That meaning was this. There was nothing so big it could not be swallowed up. Nothing so strong, it could not be humbled. Nothing so tall, it could not be made small. Not a mountain, and not the Republic. I am not prone to dire pronouncements, the Chancellor said, still looking at Umate's peak. But if this continues to get worse, and we somehow lose the ability to travel through hyperspace, all of this ends. There will be no more Republic. Her gaze shifted from the mountain to the night sky beyond. Coruscant was a city world, radiating light at all hours, making it impossible to see many stars even in the depths of night. Just a few points of light were visible, shining faintly, separated by great swaths of emptiness. Just worlds, 
The assembly droid moved the bit of wreckage into place, its manipulator arms making minute adjustments to the small metal fragment. How the droid knew where to place the piece in the overall puzzle being assembled, or the original purpose of any given chunk of wreckage, that was a task for an advanced computational motivator circuit, and beyond what Elzar Man could easily understand. To him, one ragged piece of durasteel looked very much like the next. The process seemed to be working, though. Inside a large rectangular area of space, illuminated by huge floodlights, the outline of the ship that was once the Legacy Run was clearly visible. About a dozen of the assembly droids were working to pull pieces of wreckage from the open bay doors of a huge cargo freighter parked just outside the range of the lights. One by one, the droids pushed bits of metal and plastoid into place in the reconstruction zone, some as large as full compartments, and some as small as a single wire. It was as if they were trying to rebuild the starship out of pieces of junk they had found here and there. That was more or less the task, actually. Wreckage from the initial disaster in Hetzal had been collected after it dropped out of hyperspace tracked by a huge network of satellites and monitoring stations and telescopes. The system had been bashed together during the disaster by an apparently brilliant local named Kevin Tar, a pale, quiet young man who was at this very moment standing a meter or so to Elzar's left. He wasn't alone, either. A whole group had gathered to bear witness to the destroyed starship, staring silently at the wreckage through a viewing panel on the Third Horizon's observation deck. Not much was left. The assembly droids were doing their best, but many pieces of the Legacy Run were destroyed on their impact with objects in the Hetzal system, or simply whipped through the system and vanished before they could be collected. Some had appeared in other systems via the Emergences, of which there had been 18 to date. Those pieces had been brought here as well, when possible. But still more might be in hyperspace, waiting to emerge in their own right and wreak devastation in some other part of the Outer Rim. That was the point of trying to pull the wreckage together, to estimate how much still remained to be found, to see how bad it could really get. Elzar noticed that one of the smaller pieces of wreckage was drifting out of true, possibly disturbed by one of the assembly droids jetting away or just moved by a gust of stellar wind. He lifted his hand and made a subtle gesture. The piece moved back into place, as if guided by an invisible touch. He felt eyes on him and glanced to his right, where Jedi Master Avar Chris was looking at him. Of course she had sensed him using the Force. That was Avar's gift, one among many. She called it the Song. And she heard it always. Elzar winked at her. Avar rolled her eyes, but the side of her mouth lifted up in a little smile. She couldn't help it. He knew Avar thought he used the Force for frivolous purposes from time to time, but he couldn't understand the viewpoint. If you could use the Force, then you should use the Force. What? You were supposed to save it for special occasions? It wasn't as if the Force would run out. Avar heard a song, and Elzar saw a sea of endless depth and breadth. The Force never began or ended, and it was impossible to use it up. So if Jedi Knight Elzar Man could help out a struggling assembly droid with a little push from the Force, why not? What was the harm? He knew Avar agreed even if she'd never admit it. The little smile told him everything he needed to know. How much of the legacy run do we have here? Asked Jeffo Lorelia, the Republic's Secretary of Transportation. The poor man seemed tense. A muscle in his endlessly long forehead seemed to have developed an involuntary twitch. That was understandable, 
The man's entire job was to ensure safe, reliable travel throughout the Republic. And yet, the Chancellor had just extended her hyperspace blockade for the Outer Rim another 50 parsecs after the 18th emergence near Dantooine. Kaventar consulted a data pad he was holding. I've got schematics here for the ship's superstructure, he said. And the manifest for the shipping company that lists everything it was carrying. I'd say we've got about a third. Your brain takes the outline we've built here and fills it in. Tells you you're seeing a full ship, but we really don't have that much. Elzar thought it looked like the ghost of a ship, but decided not to make that observation in a system where so many people had died. Abdalis had gotten it worse, of course. Twenty million dead on its primary world was an unspeakable tragedy. But Hetzal had suffered plenty of damage. And more to come across the rim, it sounded like. So this won't be over for ages, Senator Noar all but moaned. The Outer Rim representative understood the consequences of hyperspace closures just as much as Secretary Lorilia. These worlds were already considered by some to be backwaters, and if you couldn't even travel to them, well... The galaxy contained many worlds. Easy to forget a whole sector if need be. We don't know that, Senator, Avar said. The investigation has barely begun. Senator Noar shot a glare at Avar. And meanwhile, Madam Jedi, he spat, the poor beleaguered people of the Outer Rim, who depend on the shipping lanes for their very existence, creep closer to chaos with every moment. I'm already hearing reports of hoarding on a number of worlds, and the economic impact mounts with every passing day. Noar pointed out the viewport at the remains of the Legacy Run, spotlit and floating in space. Why are we even here? It's a wrecked cargo ship. What does it matter? You need to get out there. Find out what happened. Find out who did this. You believe the disaster was deliberate, Senator? Elzar asked. An attack? Noar threw up his hands. What other conclusion should I draw? Hetzal is the agricultural heart of the Outer Rim. Perhaps some planet father Corward became jealous of the credits flowing here and wanted to wreck our food supply. Maybe it was Selkath, angry about the prospect of Bacta putting them out of business. All I know is neither the Republic nor the Jedi are doing anything to find the culprit. You're just staring out into space. What are you even doing here? You're not part of the Chancellor's committee. I assure you, Senator, this man is never just staring at anything, Avar said. Let me introduce you to Elzar Man, a Jedi Knight of my long acquaintance. He was present here in the system during the disaster. He was instrumental in helping the Jedi prevent the Tabana Fragment from impacting the sun. Without his strength, Hetzal would no longer exist. We all did our part. Elzar murmured. Somewhere inside, though, he was pleased Avar had noticed. Dozens of Jedi working together in that final moment. No, thousands, really, if what Avar had told him was accurate. And despite all of that, she knew what he specifically had done. Of course, Senator Noar said. We appreciate your efforts, but my point remains. We're running out of time. After all, the Chancellor's precious starlight beacon languishes out in space, waiting to be brought online. What if an emergence hits that, eh? I bet then you people would finally get moving. Elzar Mann reached out and placed his hand over the Senator's mouth. Above his fingers, he could see the man's eyes go wide with shock. Shh, Elzar said. We're moving. I promise, just not in ways you can see. The Force doesn't feel the need to announce its actions. It just acts. He removed his hand. The Senator was stunned into silence, which was the idea all along. 
In fact, everyone present seemed pretty surprised as well. Sometimes, Elzar believed, it was important to remind people that no matter how important they thought they were, they were in fact just people. He could probably have accomplished the same goal via the mind trick. Noar's mind seemed weak, like most politicians, but Avar absolutely would not approve, and Elzar knew it. Normally, that wouldn't matter so much. Avar Chris was an old, close friend, which meant they could disagree, even squabble like nesting scree rats, and come out the other side just fine. But now, here, things were different. The Council had put Avar in charge of the Jedi's response to the emergencies, due to her actions during the Legacy Run disaster. It was a huge assignment. And who had she chosen as her partner for the investigation? Oh, none other than Jedi Knight Elzar Mann. Now, why had she done that? Elzar thought he knew. He and Avar had a history, sure, and worked well together. And he was good with many force techniques, including some pretty obscure ones. But he didn't believe any of those were the reason. Plenty of other Jedi were just as qualified as he was. Elzar figured Avar picked him, because doing well on this mission could help him attain the one real achievement he cared about within the Jedi. Making master. When you were a master, you could pursue your own studies. Move forward through the Force on your own terms. In fact, the Council expected Masters to do exactly that. It sounded like paradise, but a paradise that had thus far remained elusive. Doing well with the Legacy Run investigation, showing the Council that he could help the Order with its goals just as much as his own, it could make a huge difference. In other words, Avar Chris had chosen him as her partner because she was trying to help him. And Elzar didn't want to give her any reason to regret the choice. So, no mind trick. Well, not unless there was no other way. I'm good at anticipating problems, Senator, said Avar. My colleague here, Elzar Mann, is good at solutions. He tends to find a unique way through most issues. Paths others can't see. I promise we'll figure this out. As you said, we're running out of time. She turned to look out once again at what remained of the Legacy Run. I see two problems here to be solved. They encompass everything else. First, the emergencies. We need to ensure nothing like what happened at Hetzal and Abdalis happens again. Second, we need to figure out whatever is causing the emergencies which may be what also caused the original disaster. I believe this wreckage could help us with that. But that's just a hunch. I'm not a forensic scientist. Still, I know amazing things can be learned from even tiny bits of material, if the right kind of analysis is applied. Are we doing that? Yes. I have technicians from my department going over the data. And we learn more with every new piece we find, Secretary Lorelia replied. So far, nothing conclusive, but there may be an easy way to get a much clearer picture. He gestured to a bid screen in the chamber, displaying a detailed schematic of the Legacy Run in its original pre-destruction form. This class of cargo carrier has a dedicated flight recorder system. Extremely durable, specifically hardened to survive catastrophic disasters. It could tell us more about what transpired in the final moments before the Legacy Run disintegrated. I thought of that too, Secretary, but the Assembly droids haven't found it yet, said Kaventar, reviewing his notes. It could already have emerged somewhere else, or it might still be in hyperspace. Impossible to tell. We just have to wait and hope it gets found. Uh, well, Kevin said, I had an idea about that. 
The surveillance network I engineered during the disaster was designed to monitor the entire solar system in real time and track the debris as closely as possible, uh, pick up new fragments as they emerged from hyperspace and follow their paths. This is what it looked like while it was happening. He held up his data pad, triggering its projection function to display a larger image of the system. Long, thin lines wove through Hetzal, all headed on gently curving arcs toward the three suns at its center. There's a lot of data here, Kevin said. And when I link it with the other 18 emergencies, he tapped his data pad a few times, and the image changed, now expanding out to encompass a good section of the outer rim. More thin lines appeared here and there, 18 sets beyond the original deadly bloom in Hetzal. It sort of makes a picture. I don't really have it yet. I, I don't have the processing power, uh, but if I could get enough droids, uh, probably Navidroids because they're good at calculating hyperspace routes, I might be able to figure out where the emergences would happen. And if I could do that, then we could get ahead of them and maybe find the flight recorder, if it's still out there. Everyone was silent. That's very impressive, Elzar said. You should do that. Kevin shrugged. <laughs> I'd like to, but I can't. Why not? I just said, uh, I need droids. There are droids everywhere. Take those, Senator Noar said, gesturing out the viewing panel at the assembly droids. Well, I need a lot. How many? If it's Navidroids, the very newest models, then 20 or 30,000, maybe? <laughs> like I said, they're good at this kind of thing. If it's regular droids or older navvies, a lot more, like a hundred thousand. And whichever kind we use, they'll all have to be linked together to make it work. Pretty big problem to solve. More silence. The Chancellor said we could use every resource, didn't she? Avar said. Yes, but tens of thousands of nevidroids. That's... Hmm. Secretary Lorelia said, pursing his lips thinking through the problem. Many of those models are built directly into the ships they work with. Those could get here fairly quickly, but some would have to be... The Republic doesn't have that many, but perhaps we could acquire them for manufacturers. You should get started, Elzar said. The sooner we begin, the sooner we might be able to get ahead of these emergencies. We can save lives, and ideally find the flight recorder. Avar spoke. I've been thinking about something the Chancellor said, too. There's at least some chance this isn't a one-time problem. That there's something wrong with hyperspace on a larger scale. Do we have any idea how we might approach that? I'm not sure I even know where to begin. If you want to know about hyperspace, I have the people you should talk to, Senator Noar said. They don't live out here anymore. They moved to the Midrim when the family struck it rich. But I can make the introduction. Who? Elzar said. The San Teca clan. I know that name. The prospectors? They prefer the term explorers. They're an odd bunch. But no one knows more about hyperspace than they do. If there's something wrong, they'll probably be able to help. All right, Avar said. Secretary Lorelia, will you work on the Navidroid issue with Kaventar? Elzar and I will meet with the Santekas to see if we can learn anything. Let's all stay in touch. As the Senator pointed out, she looked again at what was once the Legacy Run. We're running out of time. Kaboom! Did you feel that cosmic explosion? It's like we're riding into the epicness of the High Republic. My brain is on fire, just trying to absorb all the thrilling awesomeness. I'm as hyped as a pirate who just discovered a treasure on an uncharted planet. 
Every twist in this story introduces a new out-of-this-world situation, making our space saga even more entangled and more heart-pounding than ever before. Well, hold on to your blasters, because it's time for the quote of this episode, and this quote is brighter than a lightsaber in a dark cave. Jordan Belfort once dropped this wisdom. The only thing standing between you and your goal is the story you keep telling yourself is why you can't achieve it. All right, let's analyze this quote. Imagine you got a dream, like maybe you want to start your own business or get in shape. But there's this little voice in your head that keeps saying things like, I can't do this, or it's too hard, or I'm not smart enough. That's what this quote is talking about. It is saying that the only thing stopping you from reaching your goals is those negative thoughts you keep telling yourself. Now, how can you use this in real life? Let's say you really want to start a small business, but you think, I don't know enough about business, or I don't have enough money. These thoughts are like a roadblock in your mind. But here's the thing. Most of the time, these thoughts aren't completely true. You might not know everything about business right now, but you can learn. And maybe you don't have a lot of money, but there's always ways to start small and grow. So when you catch yourself thinking these negative thoughts, try to challenge them. Ask yourself, is this really true? Or what can I do to overcome this obstacle? Instead of saying, I can't, start asking, how can I? This shift in your thinking can open up possibilities and get you closer to your goals. Remember, it's not about having all the answers or resources right away. It's about being willing to learn, adapt, and keep moving forward, even when it's tough. And that's a wrap for this episode, fellow cosmic travelers. I hope you enjoyed part five of the High Republic and get ready for more interstellar excitement because part six is just around the horizon. So until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening and may the force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. The High Republic Light of the Jedi was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>